This is the Shift Podcast. Let's bring in our good friend, Steve Stebbing. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when that classy song is on, the one and only Steve Stebbing emerges from the depths. Steve, good to hear from you, my friend. Good to hear from you, too, man. Happy New Year, because we haven't had a chance to really have a conversation so far in 2022. It's been a little bit, yeah. The kids would say, hot minute. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like it. See? Yeah, all right. Steve gets it because we're hip. We're, we're down Absolutely. with it, bro. Yeah. yeah, That's what I consider myself right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Steve. So we've got a great list of all mm-hmm. these great shows and movies to dive into. Uh, yeah. Let's get started. There's one title that's really interesting to me because I'm a history nut, and it's called Munich, The Edge of War. So explain to us what this one's all about. Yeah, this is a George McKay who is Again, going back to World War One type of stuff, because he was also in 1917. Uh, but this is uh, based on a novel by Thomas Harris, who did uh, Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon and everything. And uh, basically, it is about uh, kind of the lead up to World War One and kind of the surge of power that Hitler got heading into uh, uh, World War Two. Uh, and the support that uh, they were that Hitler was garnering at the time from the Prime Minister of the UK. Uh, so it's uh, it's well done in the fact that George McKay is just such an interesting actor to watch on screen. Um, he is basically the reason I watched this movie. Uh, it does get a bit dry in a, in a lot of patches, and may people might kind of tune out of it a bit. Um, but uh, third act really comes together for this one, and yeah, like I said, George McKay. Oh, and Jeremy Irons is in this one. Too, oh yeah, and, uh, always a good supporting veteran character actor. See, I love uh, the fact that George, Jeremy Irons is in this because you're right; he is mm-hmm. a veteran actor. He's a great supplementary character a lot of the times in the roles that he's in. But for me, Steve, it's the voice. Like Jeremy Irons has one of those sure. impeccable, unique voices. And I've been rewatching uh, Watchmen. Uh, the HBO series yeah. that aired a couple of years ago. And he is incredible in such like a huge character in that show. And uh, he all, he's an actor that always reminds you why he's like, why he's like iconic. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. Let's take a listen here. This is a short clip from Munich. It's the edge of war. I believe the name Paul von Hartmann is known to you. Yes, sir. We were at Oxford together. He has a document in his possession. We'd like you to go to Munich tomorrow and get the document. Based on that clip and based on what I know about, you know, the, the context of what led up to the beginnings of World War I, Steve, the word for me there is tense. It feels like there's yeah, just so much absolutely. tension in that. 
absolutely in suspicion and yeah there's a lot of sweaty moments in this movie for sure <laughs> that's a good way to describe a movie eh? there's a lot of sweaty moments yeah that's a one-of-a-kind review that only steve stebbing can give you so that's why we got you on here uh moving on uh, what is marionette yeah this is uh it's it's definitely off the beaten path uh mystery thriller but basically it's uh, made by a netherlands filmmaker who uh, tells the story of the psychiatrist that is going through great loss after the loss of her husband, moves to Scotland, and her first case, because she's a child psychologist, is this kid that seems to predict the future and uh, be able to uh, manipulate the uh, things around, uh, around him. And uh, she starts to kind of descend into like kind of chaos in her own life. And these are the kind of mysteries I like, where it's kind of like, they're like the main characters is kind of like teetering into like a dark abyss that kind of moves along with the mystery. And I mean, not a lot of people are going to hear about this movie, but uh, it's a little hidden gem, I think. All right, let's take a listen here. This is a short clip from Marionette. I believe the name Paul von Hartmann is known to you. Yes, sir. We were at Oxford together. He has a document in his possession. We'd like you to go. All right, I think. Dr. There Winter, go. good to meet you finally. You've got a few hours before your first session. Hi, Manny. What are you drawing, Manny? I'd like to get hold of his file from his former residence best to make a fresh start with this patient. All right. Uh, my apologies, Steve. I think we had the early bits of, uh, of no Munich, uh, the edge of war in there, but you did hear <laughs> Marionette in the back half of that, uh, that little mm-hmm. trailer piece. And what I'm uh, picking up here too is the actress Thecla Rutten uh, mm-hmm. also made an appearance in the movie In Bruges, which I think is yes. an underrated gem. So the fact yeah. that she made an appearance there already has me thinking this movie is going to be quite spectacular. Yeah, I love the Scandinavian actresses like Numi Rapace and mm-hmm. all that. And uh, anytime they kind of show up in, in other stuff, I'm like, ooh, this could be interesting. So, yeah, she's one of them for sure. All right. Uh, let's also check out uh, something called Last Night in Soho. Uh, Steve, I know you're quite a fan of this particular style. Uh, yeah, definitely the style uh, because it it is cool because 2021 was like kind of like the reintroducing of an Italian style of of horror filmmaking called Giallo. And there was at least three films last year that really heavily leaned on it. But this film in particular is really special to me because it's Edgar Wright. And I, I, I think I would say Edgar Wright's my favorite current filmmaker that he has done no wrong and had a really good 2021 because he also released a documentary called the sparks brothers as well all right so last night in soho available on blu-ray let's check out a short clip here i got this kind of gift i can see people faces things others can't this is the closest most people ever get to their dreams want to do this you think you can just walk away it really happened 
Oh, okay. There's a lot to pick up in that short audio trailer that we just shared here, uh, Steve. But for me, I think what's really interesting is the rising prominence of Anya Taylor-Joy, who is, of course, uh, very famously known right now for The Queen's Gambit. Uh, What's your take on her performance in this one? Uh, she's really she's really good, and it's a, it's a really other real kind of performance because she's because uh, I mean basically the story the main character of the story is uh, Thomas and Mackenzie who is in uh, Jojo Rabbit, uh, and she's in modern times and through her dreams in her new flat London flat she is able to basically go back to the 1960s. So the, it, her in that reality is Anya Taylor Joy. So it's really kind of like an interesting performance because it's. Uh, through a weird prism, we'll say, but uh, I mean this this cast here uh, is just looks so great on screen. Looks really great in the time period as well, and it's also one of the final performances of uh, Diana Rigg as well, who passed away mm. I think oh, just over a year ago now. All right. Again, that is Last Night in Soho, available now in Blu-ray. Our guest is Steve Stebbing. What the hell should we watch over the next few days heading into the weekend? We'll take a short break, get more of Steve's picks when we get back. That's here, and it's on The Shift. This is The Shift Podcast. John and the B-team, Sheldon Lee and Brennan Clack here with you as well. Uh, Shane and the crew back with you guys Sunday night. We're also joined by friend of the show, Steve Stebbing, as we get through what the hell should we be watching over the next few days heading into the weekend. And Steve, we've wrapped up some of the great new releases available. We're into the Blu-rays now. And one of these I just recognized right away just by the name alone. We're talking, of course, The Adams Family too. So hit me. What is this one all about? Uh, yeah, this is uh, the animated take. Uh, so this isn't your 90s one with Raul Julia or Angelica Houston. Uh, the good ones, I would say. <laughs> uh, because I actually crashed through the first movie with my daughter because I hadn't seen it um, before I was sent this, the, the sequel here uh, from Universal. Um, and I don't know, they just... I don't really like the animation style mm. in this one or the, the character design. And I, I don't know. I, I feel spoiled that, that we got the Adams family in the mid nineties, uh, which I remember seeing in theaters. So um, yeah, I, I mean, the kids will like it. Um, the ones that can remember the good stuff probably won't. <laughs> like, All right. I, I think it's a different lens we're watching it through. Fair enough. Let's take a listen here. This is Adam's Family 2 on Blu-ray. Hey, you kids. It's dinner time. Mm. Dinner time, my favorite nighttime meal. Ow! 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 <laughs> Why does nobody come in through the front door? Dearest mother and father, we will not be attending this evening's ritual mastication. What? They're both growing up so fast, they wouldn't be caught dead with their parents. All right, that's Adam's Family 2. And Steve, you're talking about the 90s movie version of Adam's Family. I grew up with the television show, The New Adam's Family, which was on Chorus mm-hmm. uh, on YTV. And um, I, I, I look, I, I think I'm a rare exception, but I actually really enjoyed that TV show because I, I never did watch the it. movies. So <laughs> if you've seen the TV show, how do you think it stacks up with this new animated version? Um, again, I think it would... Because I remember enjoying the new Adams Family quite a bit, actually. It was like a Canadian staple. Um, I think I watched it on Showcase is where it was airing. Uh, Maybe in reruns by that Mm -hmm. point. But um, 
yeah, I, I, I don't think it stacks up that well. Um, but I mean, the cast is pretty good in this. I mean, you got Charlize Theron, uh, Oscar Isaac, Chloe Grace Moretz, and Nick Kroll. But it's really weird with Nick Kroll because every time I hear him do a voice, I think of Big Mouth on Netflix. Right. Anyone that watches that show. Uh, knows the context there for sure. And Snoop Dogg is technically a part of the cast, but Tech- also not really. Yeah, he's like his voice is looped backwards and pitched up. Oh, uh, though it does feature uh, some of his music here and there in it. So um, I guess that's where it counts. But yeah, he does the cousin it, and it, it, it's a little weird. All right, fair enough. We got uh, time for one more pick here. Let's talk about the dry. Oh, boy. Yeah. Australian melodrama mystery with Eric Bana, uh, who's uh, actually it's an anniversary week this week for Eric Bana because Black Hawk Down turned 20. Oh, there you go. Want to see a really great Eric Bana movie. But this is also a really good film. I'm a sucker for these Aussie dramas. And uh, basically, he plays a, a cop that goes home to a small town. Uh, uh, who's kind of dealing with a, a community tragedy uh, with a murder su- a suicide in the, in the area. And uh, he's not exactly well-liked in town because of a previous tragedy 20 years ago that forced him out of the town. But very well-told film. All right. Uh, I'm a big Eric Bana fam, uh, fan as well. So let's check out a short clip of The Dry, now on Blu-ray. Under the Milky so you've heard some stories about me. I've heard some. Wish I knew what you were looking You're reopening for. the investigation. You think you're going to get the truth in a town like this? I'd have known what you would find. When you've been lying about something for so long, it becomes second nature. And it's something quite peculiar. Oh, interesting. And, and Steve, like when I listen to that and I hear Eric and his, of course, trademarked Australian accent, my only question mm-hmm. is, where's Eric been over the past number of years? It felt I like know. he kind of disappeared for a little while. Very few and far between for as far as uh, roles go. Yeah, I haven't seen him in a while. The one thing that really came off kind of funny to me, and this is kind of like a deep pull, but uh, one of the supporting actors in this one's Keir O'Donnell, um, who uh, people largely remember from Wedding Crashers. He's the uh, Walken's like weird son that likes to paint and everything. Right. And I didn't know he was Australian until this movie. Oh. I was like, wow, how did I not know that? Okay, interesting. Good to know. Uh, I'll probably go and check that one out simply because Eric Bana, I think, is is a tremendously mm-hmm. underrated actor. You talk about the 20-year anniversary of Black Hawk Down. Indeed, I think it's a, a fantastic film. Uh, his character, I believe, nicknamed Hoot in that one. Uh, mm-hmm. Also loved him in The Other Munich. We talked about the new release yeah, called The yes. Edge of War. Uh, but in Munich, the Steven Spielberg uh, movie, he played a wonderful, um, uh, uh, I guess it was an Israeli agent, uh, of course, mm-hmm. with the history of the Munich Olympic Games. I don't need to educate people about that, about that one, mm-hmm. Steve, but is there a better performance from Banna than Munich? You know, it's such a good performance and it's crazy because that movie is super underrated as far as um, Spielberg's uh, filmography goes. It's just one of those ones that kind of gets buried, but it's like one of his best, I think. Uh, and the tension, like yeah. we were talking about tension earlier, the tension in that film is next level stuff for sure all right well hey steve really appreciate you doing this good to chat with you my friend and uh looking forward to getting more steve stabbing back on the air as well so appreciate you sir thank you man this is the shift podcast okay indeed ah yes 
been a while since I've heard this particular song. Roberto, are you okay, guitarist? Here's a question for you guys. Are you okay with sleeping in the car? Brennan, let's start with you. Well, if I'm not driving, like, <laughs> you know what? I, I like to sleep in the car on a long road trip, but the okay. problem is your head against the window, it's not much of a pillow. Right. Fair enough. I mean, that's if you're in the passenger seat. But what about laying out in the back seat? Even then, if you actually lay your whole body out in the back seat, it's kind of awkward because the seat belt gets in the way. Now, if, if you take the seat belt off, then you can kind of still manage. I mean, your feet are a little cramped. Yeah. I, by the way, I've done all this. That's why I'm I'm kind of just saying, hey, this is exactly what it's been for me. Fair enough. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's not, not my favorite because of the positioning. But you'll do it if you have to. I, and I think that's, that's the, the moral of the story. And just a reminder, keep your seatbelt on if you're out on the roads here. We want to make sure our shift heads are taken care of. Uh, Sheldon, are you okay with uh, sleeping in the car? Well, ever since I was a kid, it's, it's always been quite easy for me to fall asleep. Oh. Just, just, you know, just like when you're taking your baby out and you need to get them to, to quiet down, go for a long drive, and it tends to put them to sleep. That's always worked for me. Interesting. So, um, yeah, like if we're on a road trip, falling asleep is no problem. If I was actually to sit there in a stopped car and try to curl up in the back seat, no dice. Okay. No dice. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I'm the same way, guys, because when I was younger, uh, little old John actually used to love reading in the car. I didn't have motion sickness like some people do, so I would just read and read and read. I could sleep in the car, no problem. Just like Brennan, I've laid out in the back. I've, of course, put the passenger seat down. I've done it all. But, of course, sleeping while driving is never advised. And just in case you're out on the roads right now feeling a little bit drowsy behind the wheel, here's a friendly little wake-up call. Wake up! Wake up! Oh man, I love that. For anyone that got jump scared by this particular clip, uh, we apologize, but not really because that's System of a Down, and I believe that song is Chop Suey. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, gentlemen, but uh, fantastic song, great band, uh, Serge Tark. Tar- Tarki, Tarkian? Uh, maybe I'm getting the name, last name wrong there a little bit, but just a phenomenal band. Anyways, it's totally fine to sleep in the passenger seat or in the back, but what if somebody steals your vehicle during your nap? That's actually what happened to an uh, Ohio man after his car was stolen while he was sleeping in the back seat. Talk about a rude awakening. So the guy fell asleep in his white Audi, and then it took off. So he awoke to a strange man, a complete stranger driving the car, the man started texting police updates of what was happening during this alleged theft. Police say they performed a slow speed vehicle termination maneuver in order to end the pursuit. I think this is just wild, guys. So first of all, it's one thing to just realize somebody's in your car that you didn't invite. Second thing for them to be driving your car because you were sleeping the whole time. Third, for you to like play it cool and not just be like, hey, the hell are you doing? Get out of my car. No, you're just like, I'm going to pretend to be sleeping and discreetly text the police what is happening, which then leads to an arrest or at least the end of this particular pursuit. And I love how they called it a slow speed vehicle termination maneuver. 
what the hell does that mean? I have no idea. That sounds like a really interesting and complex scenario. But like, guys, would you would you actually honestly re- respond the way that this person did, playing it so cool, or would you just kind of do the first thing that comes to mind and maybe punch them in the back of the head? Uh, I would have been in so much shock. I'm not quite sure what I would have done. Honestly, right. I, you know what? Playing it cool never would have happened. That's, okay. I, I can t- I can take that right off right now. At least you're honest. Yeah. What about you, Mr. Clack? Like, would you be able to keep your you know your cool and your wits about you? Well, first I think okay, I'm dreaming. Clearly, like, this <laughs> is not happening. There would be probably a few swear words, but they might be muttered because I don't want to be crazy in the backseat. Or or do you? Like, do mm. you want to make the driver? go, oh, I need to drop this guy off. Or, I mean, it's your car. I'm, I'm thinking on the spot because there's so many things that'd be going through my head. If I just woke up and there's a guy driving, I, I maybe he can drive me to McDonald's at least. <laughs> give me a burger while I'm back there. There you go. Yeah, I just hit the, uh, the drive through please, buddy, while you're at it. And get the hell out of my car, please, too. Uh, yeah, I guess the context matters. Like, if you're, if you're pulling 120 on the highway, you're probably not going to punch him in the back of the head because that's probably very dangerous for not just you and the vehicles, but others around you. But if you're pulling a slow 30 in a neighborhood zone and you're just like, what is going on? Uh, a nice little rabbit punch to the back of the dome just to assert your dominance in that vehicle be like i'm the alpha here you are in my zone my territory and you need to leave i'm not a very physically confrontational person but i do get very defensive about my car like if my friends drive my car i get super paranoid i'm like please watch the lanes watch them everything so i i think i would just flip out if somebody was driving my car and i just woke up like that so uh it happened though and uh this is a wild story but it is true uh all right moving on are you okay Ah, Roberto, by the way, doesn't have a driver's license, so he's never had such an incident. So there you go. Are you okay with space movies? Sheldon. Um, now, keep in mind, space movies is a very encompassing yeah, topic, so it yeah. could be Star Wars, Star Trek. Well, those things I've never seen either one of. The Martian with Matt, Matt Damon. I haven't seen. I don't know if space movies are my thing. You know, I... My favorite movie growing up, and still probably one of my favorite movies, is E.T. So there's a little bit of a space I'll element, take yeah, element I'll take it. there. I'll take it. That's a space movie. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, Mr. Clack. I love movies that are in space or that have something to do with what's beyond. Because I really like to think about just other beings and other things we can explore. What's personally. out there, man. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I love them. I dig them. And also the landscapes and the different worlds that you can build yeah. on planets. So I, I love it. I mean, you know, there have been a lot of great space movies in recent years because technology is getting better. Uh, graphics are getting better. CGI, all of it is getting better. Like, I think one of my favorite movies in my entire life is Interstellar, right? With Matthew McConaughey and and uh, a whole bunch of other people that I'm forgetting the name on. Uh, Anne something. Uh, sorry. Sorry, Anne. But it's just, it's a phenomenal movie. And even scientists were blown away by how accurate the uh, portrayal of black holes were in that movie. And I think that speaks volumes to the kind of movies that can be created with so much creativity and research into it. But are you okay with space movies? Because plenty of great films are set in space. One of the best, of course, of all time is 2001, A Space Odyssey. Open the pod 
pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Oh, Bye. my goodness. Like, honestly, one of the greatest villains of all time in cinema, because there's something so scary about a cold, calculating, heartless machine that only operates on logic and reasoning, but within very broken parameters like that and determines, no, I'm just going to pull the plug on life support on the crew. And now I'm going to try and kill you as well. Like, that is just terrifying. And I think 2001 A Space Odyssey is probably what puts so much paranoia into people's minds around society when things thinking about like Y2K and the great robot uprising, things like Terminator and things like that. But Sheldon, did you watch 2001? I watched it for the first time about a year ago, okay. a year and a half ago. Okay. And honestly, it's something I have to watch again. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot to take in and it's, it, you know, it moves at its own pace. Um, and, and the, um, what do you call that thing? The hieroglyph or whatever that is. And it's just, there's a lot going on. So yeah. I definitely, it needs a second viewing. Um, but like a, a super interesting movie, very easy to get, um, absolutely hooked on. And, and, uh, that was uh, Kubrick, was it not? It was yeah. Stanley Kubrick. And, and yeah. his choice of music that he puts in all of his oh. movies just, just brings it all together all the time. Brilliant. So. <clears throat> of course, from one of the very best at filmmaking. Brennan, you, I'm sure, are a Space Odyssey fan because, as you said, you like thinking about the beyond. I just think it's crazy that this movie was made in the late 60s. Yeah. It doesn't look like it. Like, when you're watching this movie, it, it really felt not only ahead of its time, but you know, way ahead of its time because the Hal storyline we're seeing today in movies, mm. we're seeing it with rogue AI and, oh, there's a, there's a robot that's going to get you. But that was already done back in that time frame. Yeah. And the whole movie just, it looks gorgeous from start to finish. It's just the last 20 minutes. Uh, don't ever watch it high because yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yes. I mean, like there are so many parts of that movie where if you are under the influence, we'll say, uh, you are probably not going to understand everything, but it's a movie where you can enjoy time and time again. Of course, it is a long movie, so you have to commit the time in order to actually get through it. But it's, it's, an, it's an experience, man. And to Clack's point, it holds up so well, even in 2022. But speaking of space, special effects teams over time have created landscapes that are so realistic that it makes actors and actresses look like they're actually in space. But now, Tom Cruise, and of course it's Tommy, Tom wants to help th take things even further. The producers of Tom Cruise's future space movie announced plans to attach a film studio to the International Space Station thanks to a Houston-based company called Axiom. It's called C1. The module would be the first ever entertainment studio in space the c1 module is inflatable and it's going to have a diameter of nearly 20 feet and it's scheduled to launch in december of 2024 i grew up thinking the international space station was one of the coolest things ever because um there was someone in my elementary school class grad class i suppose paul and his dad actually worked for the Canadian Space Agency. So he would come in every now and then to talk to us uh, kids, elementary school kids, about the Canadarm, the Canadarm 2. This is back when the space shuttle program was still active. And so I just got so enthralled with things like this. Canada's work on the International, International Space Station just blew my mind at that young age. Now it's still so cool. I can't imagine it, though, 
being used by actors and producers to film Hollywood movies. In a way, guys, maybe I'm crazy here, but I feel like it's a slap in the face of what science and the space station is supposed to be about. Like, Brandon, help me out here. Am I I just being obscene with this? Or should things like the ISS be left for research? I mean, it's going to look better if you just do it digitally, isn't it? Like, like barely anyone knows what space looks like. Sure, we've seen some footage, but only a few people have actually gone up there. So I don't really see why they'd spend all this money other than just, oh, Tom Cruise wants to go to space. That, That seems like the only reason why he'd be even doing this. And then the other question is, like, what kind of gear do they have to bring up there to help make this movie? Like cameras, yeah. sound equipment, like what else? How are you going to bring this all up? Well, I mean, that's the thing. When people try and film gravity-less scenes or no gravity scenes on Earth, they usually do it in uh, very specific circumstances. So you can do it underwater, digitally remove the water. You can do it in certain studios where they'll have you hanging from strings. Or they'll do it in a plane that continues to free fall every few minutes so that you have this literal gravity-free effect on film. But to just be like, nah, screw all of that. We're going to go beyond the limits of basically the rules of gravity, you know, all that. And we're just going to go into space. Like, mind-boggling. And, of course, it's the, I don't know if it's ego or pride or just hunger, the insatiable desire of Tom Cruise to want to do it. Not a surprise to me at all. But, again, Tom, like, you got to pick your spots here. Wait until Amazon and Jeff Bezos throw something up in there that you can attach the C1 module to it. Don't do it to the International Space Station. What if something goes wrong during filming one day and they damage the space station? Like, that is just mind-blowing. So I, I, I just don't get it. Like, Sheldon, you're shaking your head. Like, what, what are your two cents when it comes to Tom Cruise wanting to go into space? I don't know. I immediately think of William Shatner going to space. And it's, yeah. just, it's just something a rich person wants to do for their own benefit. 100%. 100%. <laughs> like, you know, Jeff Bezos, his brother, they've been to space. William Shatner, of course. Uh, you had Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson going up. Like, there, there's so many things that are happening. It's all just rich people's playgrounds now. It also says the diameter of whatever it is they're building up there is 20 feet. Like, right. What are you achieving with 20 feet of diameter exactly? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I don't know what that, I mean, we'll see, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Apollo 11. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever watched that movie featuring uh, Tom Hanks, uh, Gary Sinise, Kevin Bacon is in it as well. Uh, a great movie. I believe it came out in the early 90s or late 80s. Um, again, they didn't go into space, but they had to film a movie about the ill-fated Apollo 11 mission, which had a whole sequence of disaster, so they never got to do it. But it looked authentic to me anyways. So if they could do that, Tom Cruise with Tom Hanks back in the 80s or 90s. Tom Cruise, you do not need to actually go into space. That's just you being greedy. 877-399-9898. Getting some reaction into this one. Uh, We got this text saying, what if it helps fund scientific research? And that's a good point. I got, just give me like a quick five seconds to think about that one because... If there is some sort of a deal in place where you are going to literally help the International Space Station with research by funding it, by paying off what the C-1 module is supposed to do, maybe I can get on board with that. Maybe. 
But the downside is, is that people are going to start thinking of the International Space Station as just a movie studio and not for the incredible research that it really does provide. So I don't know. I'm still kind of on the fence with that one. Uh, We got this text saying, uh, my favorite space movie is Jason Goes to Space, of course, Friday the 13th. There you go. They didn't need to go literally into space for that one. Uh, We've got this one from Trucker Dan wanting to correct me. Apollo 13, John, not Apollo 11. My apologies, getting the Apollos all mixed up there was a whole bunch of different apollo missions so fair enough appreciate the feedback coming in so far this is the shift podcast shifting gears here a little bit uh let's get into the world of hockey so Right now, for those that don't know, Brennan, you can give me the official game count. The Edmonton Oilers are on a massive losing streak. What is the number currently at, Mr. Clack? Well, it's, it's kind of been separated by this little two-game stretch they had. But with Dave Tippett behind the bench, as he, he had COVID, so he missed two, they've lost 13 in a row Oof. with their head coach behind the bench. Right. They won two without him. Okay, so the Oilers are in a slide, which is catastrophic for a number of reasons, namely because, of course, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, the two star forwards of that team, aren't getting any younger. And there is this feeling in Edmonton and really around the hockey world that the Oilers need to be playoff contenders in order to satisfy players like them so that they don't all of a sudden decide one year Edmonton isn't the place for me. So there's a lot of distress and panic and unhappiness in Edmonton and Oiltown as the hockey team is struggling on the ice. Earlier this week, Leon Dreisaitl, one of those star players I mentioned, after another loss was asked uh, a series of questions by a Hockey Hall of Fame sports reporter and beat reporter for the Oilers named Jim Matheson, which led into... A bit of a kerfuffle, which I will just let you hear now. This is Dreisaitl and Jim Matheson. Did you think over the last two years you've been second in your division and you showed a lot of maturity, but now you've lost six in a row twice. Did you think your team was past that, not getting into these long losing streaks? Sure, yeah. Um, Lots of reasons for why the owners are playing the way they are in terms of winning and losing. What do you think is the number one reason for the losses now? Is there, is there one thing that you, in your own mind you're saying, we got to get better at that? Yeah, we, ha- we have to get better at everything. Would you like to expand on that? No. Nope. You can do that. You know everything. Why are you so pissy, Leon? Hmm? Why are you so pissy? I'm not. I'm just answering your question. Yeah, you are. Whenever I ask you a question. I gave you an answer. Not very good one. Okay. I have one more for you. Leon, you show your frustration on the ice last game against Ottawa. Is that a good thing when you show it so the other team knows you're frustrated? Yeah, it's a great thing, for sure. Good. Wow. Okay. So if that isn't drama at its highest natural form in sports, I don't know what is. So clearly Dreisaitl, not too excited about those lines of questions coming from Jim Matheson. Jim looking for some type of quote that he can use in his write-up post-game to, again, go over the failures of the Oilers right now and the frustrations shared by some of the players inside that room. Before we go any further, guys, you just heard that. You're both big hockey fans. Brennan, I know you also work within like the hockey media scope. Uh, first, I'll go to Sheldon. 
when you hear that, Sheldon, do you all automatically have like a sense of which team you're you're sort of trenching yourself into? Is it Team Drysaddle or Team Matheson? It would definitely be Team Drysaddle. Okay. The first time I saw this clip, um, you know, had I been drinking coffee, I would have done a spit take. Mm. It was uh, it, followed by a giggle. It was kind of funny. There was some humor there. But honestly, I have to go with Drysaddle. I have to take his side because. Um, it's, it's quite obvious at this point that the team is extremely frustrated. Okay. Leon Dreisaitl is not the only one, um, questions. He answered the question. Can you give me one thing? He said, it's a whole bunch of things. I know the answer is vanilla, but you got an answer. There's not much more he can give you, especially after a disappointing loss to the worst team in the league, the Mm -hmm. Ottawa Senators, one of, um, you could tell he was frustrated. Leon definitely could have handled it a little better. His uh, his body language did not suggest that he was having a good time whatsoever. Um, and I'm sure that that ticked off Jim Matheson a little bit. However, I am taking Leon's side because I have never heard... I've never heard a reporter call anybody pissy in my life. Right. And just in terms of professionalism, that knocked me off my keister. I was just like, whoa, like, what is happening? And just to be objectively clear... When you ask anyone why you being pissy, it doesn't matter if it's your friend, your coworker, your a significant other, you're not going to get the response no, you're hoping for. You will not. That is a trap and you're only having yourself to blame. So okay, I'll I'll credit with you on that one. We'll go to Mr. Clack now. Brandon, as somebody who works within like hockey media, uh, you surely you must be on team Jim for this one. I'm not really on team Jim, but it might not be for the reason that people may expect me to say uh i I look at the situation like this the the thing is is that well first of all just with questions that are kind of pointed the way that jim was saying it's hard for leon to answer those like it's it's hard for leon to go up there and give one specific reason why the team is losing because he's going to either whether it's the coaching or the power play or whatever He's going to sig- signal out people that aren't him necessarily. Good point. He's going to throw a guy like McDavid under the bus or the coach under the bus. Like he's going to do something that hurts the room. So it's not really fair to ask him questions like that. And at the same time, I think Jim Matheson's very okay. Like it's okay that he's going hard on Leon, but a lot of people that are watching this unfold, especially in Edmonton, if you understand the media landscape here, mm. they want hard questions to Dave Tippett and to Ken Holland. They want the same treatment of hard questioning to the coaching and the general manager. It's, it's kind of kind of rare in Edmonton. You don't see that very often. It's completely different from Toronto. Toronto, they're very, very hard on the coaches and management all the time. Kyle Dubas does not get a break. Mm-hmm. But in Edmonton, I think there's a lot of fans who are sitting here going, look, we've been we've been losing forever Mm -hmm. and no one seems to ask hard questions until a guy's about to be fired. And then the star players who have carried this Edmonton team all the way through to this point, the the fact they were even winning games at the start were because those two were on record paces. If you're going to go hard on them, you have to go hard on everybody else. I think that is why the fans were really on dry settle side at the start. It's just because. You know, you can go hard in a player, but you have to go hard in everybody else. And the questions that were being asked weren't necessarily questions that he can answer without alienating his teammates. All right. I And I think you make some excellent points there. They're, they're strong counterpoints because uh, 
you're right. No player, especially in hockey, where hockey culture is is, is a thing, you know, the code is a thing. Uh, players very seldomly are going to throw one of their teammates under the bus in, in, in the media, right? You can do it in a closed door meeting. You can do it in private. You can do it away from the rink at home on the phone, whatever. But you don't do it in the media because it's just, you know, it leads to even more uh, speculation, rumors, reports that they don't want to deal with. And I'm not here defending Jim Matheson because his hockey, you know, his his resume, it speaks for itself. Hockey Hall of Fame for being a sports journalist, sure. Um, but I will say this. In the COVID era of NHL action, players have it kind of easy right now. Because most of the time, these interviews are not done in person, right? Teams are giving uh, a lot of reporters limited access because of COVID-19 protocols. Like you can't go into locker rooms. You can't go and do one-on-ones right now. You have to do it virtually on Zoom. Post-game interviews handled the same way, where a lot of reporters only get the opportunity to ask two questions. One question and then a follow-up if you have one. That's the way some teams are, are handling it. It's kind of dependent on market to market. But players have it easier today than they did over two years ago before COVID. Because if the Oilers were on this kind of a losing streak before COVID set in, it would be far worse for Dreisaitl. Because he wouldn't be able to get away from Jim Matheson. Like he would be in the locker room there with a microphone and a note in his face getting those questions asked in person. Whereas maybe this was done virtually in a conference call. And you can't necessarily lay on the the sarcasm or the frustration on Matheson's side because you're limited in the question and the time that you get. And secondly, Dreisaitl is one of the leaders of that room. I get that losing sucks. Nobody likes to lose. Heck, Brendan's an Oilers fan. Sheldon and I are Canucks fans. Like, we know all about what it's like when your team is losing. But when you are a leader in that room and one of the best players in the league and you're handsomely paid, there is a responsibility that you can provide answers even when they're really tough questions. And I think that's why there's so much respect for players like Henrik and Daniel Sedin. In, throughout their entire careers because they got dealt so many tough questions each and every night, especially in the late stages of their careers when their uh, hockey team, the Vancouver Canucks, were clearly, clearly spinning out and just failing to make the playoffs. Each and every night, reporters going into that locker room in person and asking Henrik and Daniel, why is this team struggling? Why is this team failing to score on the power play? Why is the goaltending not good enough? Why is the defense not putting up enough points? They would take it on the chin each and every night, but they never got angry and they never got too defensive. They would answer very boringly, but they never would go on the defensive the way that Dreisaitl did. I think, in my opinion, having worked like as a sports um, radio host in, in, in the earlier stage of my life, I kind of see fault on both parties. I think Dreisaitl could have handled himself better in the sense that those answers were obviously going to be challenged by Matheson. And I think Jim could have done better because you should never ask anyone why you're getting pissy. I thought Jim's first two questions were totally fine, right? Like um, uh, what's going on and what's the number one reason why your team is struggling? You're obviously not going to get great answers, but those questions by themselves are not, they're not inappropriate. What happened was immediately after Leon sort of saying, you leave, you know, I'll let you answer that because you know everything like Leon. That's not a mature answer. 
The you know everything question made me wonder, and maybe Brennan can can confirm this or, or, or just talk about it, whether or not there has been any sort of uh, you know melodrama between these two before. Well, uh, if uh, this is an ongoing thing, or Brennan can confirm that, this. That but specific I will say, comment makes it sound like he's been digging at Drysaddle for however long. You know? Jim's a long tenured beat reporter, yeah. and beat reporters will be brutally honest uh, when they when they can, because that's you know they've they've in a sense earned the right to sometimes be hard. Sometimes players take it personally, and Brennan, I'm sure you can confirm on that much. But it, it, Jim is not some sort of rookie writer; like he's been with that team for decades. I can say that from behind the scenes, I've heard that there are some frustrations from the Oilers media on Leon's answers in the past. It, it, he has been improving, but there are videos. If you look on YouTube, you can see sometimes his answers were along the same lines as the ones he gave more near the end of the, the questioning. The, the mm. Jim Matheson question about dry sidle, is it is it good to be angry is it good to show frustration to the other team which i felt like was a you know that was a question out of anger on jim's part because there's but the there's kind of an obvious answer there well showing your anger to the other team is probably not a great thing uh, so i don't know how you expect dry settle answer that but dry settle answering back with oh sure it's a great thing yeah we have seen him be sarcastic to other reporters in the past so i do believe that there's some some strife there and you don't always hear about the strife behind the scenes, but it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those stories do get out. I mean, Bob McKenzie famously uh, made Wayne Gretzky so upset that a lot of Leafs fans blame Bob for riling up Wayne to play as well as he did in game seven (laughs) for LA to beat Toronto. Right. So that, that story got, got public and it's happened before, but in this case, it just was because it was Canadian. I think it was very, very public and out there. Yeah, it's almost like people haven't heard of John Tortorella and Larry Brooks. <laughs> like this looks like nothing compared to that. No, you're right. There have been some great barbs uh, exchanged between those two in the past. Uh, the world is better with a Larry and Brooksy fight. Uh, but you know, just to add a further context to this conversation, Jim Matheson did make an appearance later that week after the little spat with Leon Dreisaitl. He made an appearance on 6:30 Ched, saying that it wasn't supposed to turn out. This way, take a listen. I've also had players yell at me for something I wrote, and then we sat down, and it was fine after that. So it's not supposed to be an adversarial relationship between the media and the players. It's not supposed to be. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I think I'm very fair at what I do. I can think of other people in the profession that are harder on players than than I am. I think I'm pretty fair. I said it must have done something that Leon didn't like, but his answers to the questions are are short and dismissive in my eyes. So that's uh, why I got my backup. I will say this final points. Um, you know, I think you guys are not wrong about the whole Leon Dreisaitl and, and is he in the right or is he in the wrong? I, I don't know if there is like a, a perfect answer. I don't know if, if there is the one true answer for this, but in years past when I would have a chance to interview players pretty regularly, uh, one of the things that I found was that you are going to have a much better interview when you can throw in a softball first. And generally speaking, when your team is winning, of course, because everyone's happier in that sense. But maybe what Jim could have done is to just start out with a joke, like break the ice a little bit because there's so much tension after a loss and players are coming to the podium all angry and there's a lot of testosterone running around. Regardless, this has been one of the more juicier media exchanges that the NHL has seen. And I'll just reference back to this old NHL Network commercial that made fun of the fact that 
especially hockey players, can be very cliche with their interview responses. Take a listen to this gem, uh, which features the conversation of a made-up coach answering questions. Why'd we lose? Uh, well, I thought we shut the lights out in the first two periods. Uh, we, we, in the third period, we just couldn't uh, put the biscuit in the basket. You know, uh, we, we just couldn't put the stuffing in the turkey, or we couldn't even put the turkey in the oven. Uh, we couldn't put the car in the garage. We couldn't put the train in the station. Uh, we couldn't put the rod in the water, the lightning in a bottle, uh, the cat in the hat. I mean, that's really why we lost tonight. We couldn't put the cat in the hat. <laughs> See, I mean, like that's 99% of all hockey interviews. Let's not get ourselves. You know you're in trouble when you can't get the cat in the hat. Well, that's it. I mean, that's, again, probably why the Oilers are losing. They're not putting the cat in the hat. And maybe Jim Matheson should have opened the conversation there with, with Drysaddle, being like, come on, guys, like what the cat in the hat? Like, what's so hard about it? Uh, I guarantee it probably would have gone over a little bit better than what actually happened, but I digress. 877-399-9898. Let us know who you think was in the right here. Was it Leon? Was it uh, Mr. Matheson? Josie chiming in saying, Leon was dared by a very experienced longtime reporter into throwing a teammate, namely a goaltender, under the bus. Yes, the Oilers are having goalie issues, but Leon proved himself. So got some opinions there already. This is the Shift Podcast. Uh, Moving on, let's uh, bring in our next guest. Now, he's usually heard every Monday night on this show. And based on this song, I think you'll know who it is. Uh, But because I haven't really had the experience to work on the Shift in a while, and it's been a while since I've been able to connect with him, I am very pleased to welcome Andy Barrar onto the show. He is our technology and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com and, of course, the Monday Night Contributor on The Shift. Andy, always a pleasure chatting with you, buddy. John, once I knew that you were coming on the show, I had to come on. It's been a while since we talked on Late Night Radio. <laughs> it really it. has been. It has been. So I'm glad that we could have this sort of reunion moment. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> we're here to talk about some big things, too, because this weekend, Andy, as I'm sure you know, like Microsoft makes this gigantic purchase of Activision Blizzard for nearly $69 billion. Like, I just had to look it up. That was more than the entire GDP of... um of, of uh, Costa Rica in 2020. Like, that is how big this deal was. So just help us break down why Microsoft would have been interested in doing something like this. Well, I'll tell you one thing, John. Nobody could see this coming because of the price tag. We're talking nearly $70 billion. And what's even more crazy is they're doing this in cash. They're paying cash. So mm. whoever Microsoft has accountants, they're doing a really, really good job <laughs> managing that money because I need that kind of accountant to manage my budget. But um, they really did this because what we're seeing is that transition as we move towards from you know traditional consoles where we would buy a cartridge or a game and then you would buy the next one and maybe sometimes you would return your old one, which I, I used to do back in the day. Um, well, th- those days are gone. It's moving to what Netflix is doing, a subscription model where you would pay a monthly fee and then you have a variety of different game titles that you could use. And just like what we saw with Netflix, where they would buy the content, it's all about the content. You know, mm. if you can get the rights to Seinfeld, you know you're going to get a lot of views. And the same goes with video games. If you can get a franchise title, something like Call of Duty, which has loyal, loyal fan base, you're going to be able to get people to subscribe to your your subscription service. And so it seems, you know, in hindsight, to make a lot of sense for Microsoft to make this. The only thing, and like I said in the beginning, nobody could see this coming just because of 
the amount that they had to pay for to get the entire Activision um, franchise mm -hmm. into the Microsoft ecosystem. Yeah, you mentioned Call of Duty, which of course is one of the most popular video games in the world right now. And it has been for a number of years. I remember like going to high school, Andy, and Call of Duty was still popular back then. It has just evolved into this beast now. Uh, but Activision also has really popular titles like World of Warcraft. And there was a time, Andy, where World of Warcraft was like the king of all video games because of the monthly subscription that you have to pay in order to play that game and they were making so much money each and every month they had like hundreds of millions of users basically so it just kind of tells you uh the, the kind of investment that microsoft wants to put into this and let's not forget too andy microsoft already has quite a repertoire of games under their collection already like when people think of halo and the, the great franchise halo turned out to be that was already a microsoft exclusive title so uh, i can see what you're saying here like they just wanted to make sure that their brand and now moving forward their subscription fee is going to be the best possible service but does that mean that if you want to play call of duty in the future like you're only going to have to play it on xbox and maybe playstation is left out here well, this is the big question that everybody is asking because Activision already had agreements with Sony PlayStation to have their games. So these, these are contracts that have already been signed. And now with Microsoft taking it over, what they're trying to say right now, because this is fresh, like this hasn't even gone through. We have to understand that. Mm. We still have to get regulatory approval. But they're, they're saying all the right words, John, because what they're saying is we, we want to make sure that people can play you know, the content on the platforms that, that they choose. But that doesn't say in the future that you might see an exclusive only title on um, on the Xbox Game Pass platform. And so that's the big thing, just like you see with Netflix, a new show. It's an exclusive on Netflix, an exclusive on Amazon Prime Video. You're going to see that the same uh, in the gaming industry and the gaming industry. If people don't play games, you have to understand this is a massive industry, John. I did some I did some research. Mm -hmm. I want to see just how big the gaming industry is. It's a $175 billion industry wow. right now. There are 3 billion gamers on earth. Now, we're not just talking about Xbox and, and PlayStation, but casual gamers who are using uh, their smartphone to play games like Candy Crush, which now Microsoft will have access to because that right. was part of Activision. They also, you were mentioning, they have the Tony Hawk franchise, which was really big uh, in, in past years. And also Minecraft, which is used mm. by a lot of kids. You know, so they're getting the gamers from the early years, but they also got the mature gamers, the the older people like us who have been playing these games like Call of Duty for, for years. And Microsoft, you know, 70 billion seems like a lot of money, but their valuation is 2.3 trillion, which puts them <laughs> only second to Apple in terms of their market valuation. So they got the money. They're looking at the future. We talk about the metaverse. We don't know really what the metaverse is going to be, mm -hmm. but I can certainly tell you gaming will be a part of it. And I was thinking about it this morning, John, what does Call of Duty look like in the metaverse? Like right. that, could you just imagine what, what that would look like if you had a VR headset and you're playing Call of Duty in this web 3.0 um, that we're gonna see, especially as 5G gets rolled out? Oh, <clears throat> I was gonna ask about that exact point because 5G seems like it's going to unlock so much potential for not just metaverse, but indeed for video gaming. Uh, VR technology is getting better each and every year. It started with just the simple headsets, and now like there's just so much more immersion to it. And and I do wonder like if maybe investors, like some of the bean counters with Microsoft, kind of recognized that gateway is starting to get clearer and clearer and thought, if we make this move now, yeah, it's going to cost us $70 billion today, but in 5, 10 
15 years, who, who knows, uh, we're going to make triple that amount because the, 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 the potential is there for video gaming to just explode once 5G internet becomes a more common theme throughout North America and, and of course, around the world. Uh, it, it just it, it feels so exciting. Like, you know, Andy, I'm a gamer, right? So I, I've grown up playing these games, a lot of these titles uh, throughout my whole life, but you're always kind of limited to the capabilities of your internet and so if you had like the dial-up internet in the uh, late 90s early 2000s you were always playing a foot behind those who got the early jump on cable what, what does 5g do for video gaming you think well there's been two roadblocks like you meant mentioned uh when it comes to online gaming the internet connection was always one of those roadblocks but it was also your computer because you're a pc gamer and, mm-hmm. and i know this because I'm, I'm a, you know, that's where I got my start off was building PCs um, by the components and the graphics and putting it together and souping them up. Just like people soup up cars, you know, the, yeah. the gamers would soup up their PCs. And you did that because you needed the graphics power, you needed the RAM to play some of these games. And then you had to then play on the internet. Now, here's how 5G is going to change all of that. You're not going to have to worry about having a souped up PC. You could probably in the future be able to play some of these high-end games on a Chromebook Hmm. because 5G is going to allow what's called edge computing where you're going to have a server that's pretty close to you. And the server, because the 5G connection so fast, all of the processing, that graphics processing that would happen on your computer is now happening on that. So computer becomes almost just like a terminal. It doesn't matter if you use your smartphone, your iPad, your, your Chromebook, or your laptop. It just, it's just a screen. All the backend processing, 5G is going to do uh, uh, what they call edge computing on that, that server that is closest to you. And then you're going to, it's then going to shoot it to all the other servers so you can play online gaming. But that's the future. So it really comes down to content because I don't, I quite honestly, John, I don't know if we're going to have a future, you know, X or PS6 or PS7 because we don't need that processor anymore when we have 5G and it can be done on a, on another server uh, at twice the speed. I mean, <clears throat> there's kind of an example of that already with uh, with the Stadia platform, right? Because Stadia will essentially remove the requirements of needing this high-end supercomputer, let's say, that you have to spend thousands of dollars on right now because most high-end video cards are like $2,000 starting yeah. price, basically. Uh, you don't need to have that anymore if you can get with Stadia. They take care of all the hardware components and allow you to play as long as you have a stable, strong internet connection. Yes, and so Stadia, that's Google's entrance into the uh, what they're calling cloud gaming. And so they see a future just like all these other companies, of a subscription service. So just like we have the choice of HBO, Disney+, Plus, Amazon, or sorry, uh, Amazon Prime Video and Netflix, mm-hmm. now in the video game world, you're going to have your, your PlayStation, Xbox, Google Stadia. I, I guarantee Amazon Prime is going to get in there. But now everything's getting blurred because Netflix is getting into casual gaming as well. That's right. Everybody understands that gaming is here to stay Nobody understands what gaming is going to look like in the future because we don't have that 5G technology, but everybody knows the future of web, web 3.0, whatever that looks like, gaming is going to be a huge part of it. And the, the successful games are the ones that people play, and that's why gaming content is now king. And Microsoft, you know, having $70 billion in cash... <laughs> Just turned around and said, you know, we're going to buy it. The interesting thing, and I'm trying to figure this out, John. I'm, I'm curious on your opinion. 
What is Sony going to do in retaliation of this? Because their market value went down 20 billion after this announcement. Wow. You know, it's always been that that war in in technology. Like the older folks might know, it was like beta versus v, v, uh, VHS. Uh, it was Sony versus Xbox. Mm-hmm. Or back in the day, it was Nintendo versus Sega. Yeah. Um, but you know, this this was a huge move. So everybody is now thinking Microsoft might be the best bet. But Sony is going to have to react to this. Like they're not going to take this, uh, you know, falling down. They're going to obviously do something. And I'm curious to what you think, being yeah. a gamer, what they would do. I-, I think Sony has to make a move. Like I don't see them basically surrendering and walking away, being like, "All right, that's it. We're cutting our losses, and we're no longer interested in the gaming industry or the gaming slice because we can't afford it anymore." Uh, it's like a tit for a tat. It's like okay. You bought Activision Blizzard. We're going to go ahead and buy a a different mega gaming publisher in order to make exclusive titles pretty sexy for the Sony um, uh, contents. And so I I just wonder what company is going to be the one that Sony has an eye on now. I mean, there's there's a lot of publishers out there, but they've all a lot of them have consolidated. So what used to be uh, like hundreds, maybe thousands of independent studios have all kind of teamed up over the past 20 years, bit by bit, slowly, but surely. And so I I wonder which company maybe Sony might be interested in. But I think that's the only move left for Sony. They can't just dwindle their thumbs and be like, we'll see what happens. They have to be assertive and aggressive and, and try to find something that'll make them just as appealing for gamers as Microsoft. Microsoft does now with Activision Blizzard. I see two options for Sony. I always wonder if I was Sony came up to me as a consultant and said, "We're going to pay you a lot of money. Tell us what to do." Right. And I would probably say, you know, there's two things I want you guys to look at. How much is uh, Nintendo worth these days? Mm. Because they got a great franchise. And imagine you got it to me, a Mario on the PlayStation. <laughs> you know that 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 could definitely attract people because the Nintendo they have a lot of good gaming franchises. The second thing that I would ask Sony if I was their consultant, I go, how much is Electronics Arts these days? Because yes. they also have a lot of great franchises. They have, especially when we talk about EA Sports, they got the FIFA franchise, they got the Madden franchise, they also got the NHL franchise. So Sony could try to position themselves as the console for sports gaming, because we know with eSports and sports gaming, that's a whole separate section. Um, And then maybe if you're in the first-person shooters, you might want to go Xbox. So they could strategically differentiate themselves by going either the Nintendo route or going through the um, gaming, uh, sports gaming route. Um, I think that would be something that they should consider. All right, that's kind of interesting. Uh, we're speaking with Andy Burrar, our uh, technology digital lifestyle expert here on the show. We'll take a quick break. Before we get there, though, just really quickly wanted to confirm uh, and just share this breaking news. Uh, U.S. singer Meatloaf, of course, whose hits include Bat Out of Hell. Uh, we are learning right now that he has died at age 74, passed away January 20th, according to an official official statement on his Facebook page. Uh, details have not been shared exactly as to how or why it happened, but we do know that uh, Meatloaf, aka Marvin Lee Aday, passed away with his wife at his side. So we'll have more details as it comes through, uh, but we'll take a quick break. Andy Boar, uh, going to continue this discussion with him right here, and it's on The Shift. This is The Shift Podcast. 
All right, welcome back to The Shift. Uh, we are joined by our good friend, Andy Barrar. We're talking video games because Microsoft has just purchased Activision Blizzard, a publisher for nearly $69 billion. And Andy, when we think about what this means for the future of the industry, is a massive sale like this actually good for the industry? Well, here's what I wanted to see, because you probably know this as well. When a new console comes out, you would probably talk to all your friends, like, which one are you going to get? Are yeah, you going to get Xbox? Yeah. Because you want to be able to play with them. You know, you, you might be playing the same game, but you're on that different, you know, entity. You're in that different subscription base. What I really wanted to see, and I thought we were going to get here, where it didn't matter what console you had, there was going to be, you were going to be able to play NHL against, you know, somebody on Xbox or PlayStation. It didn't matter. It was just, you know the same game with the same type of experience. That's where I thought we were going to be, mm. where it was just about the game and not the console, but it went the other way. It went, the console started to buy the games and then make that subscription model. So the day of, of doesn't matter what console and you can play your friends or doesn't matter, you know, what, what you had. I don't think those are ever going to happen anymore, but it's really about subscriptions because companies love subscriptions. Mm. And, and I'm, another thing I'm worried about, we're seeing this happen with Netflix, is once you get that subscription, then the prices still go up because right. they can't get any more subscribers. They've saturated the market and all they can do is just increase the price. And that worries me as well, especially when you have that exclusivity because then what are you gonna do? If you're a Call of Duty player and Microsoft says, we're gonna increase the price, mm. you have, you're really out of luck. You can't go anywhere else to play that game. Yeah, you can't just go and play Call of Duty on your PlayStation, right? Like it's, if it yeah. becomes an exclusive title, you're, you're SOL, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're basically stuck. You have no choice but to pay. And I think that's also curiously where I'm going to keep an eye on, Andy, because gamers, one thing I know is that they hated loot boxes, right? The whole idea of microtransactions where the game basically teases you with some content that you can only unlock if you open up your wallet. And yes. sometimes it's as small as 2 or $3, but those things add up. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, like if I was an investor and if I had a little bit of money, maybe I wanted to go into the market, Andy, would you recommend that maybe now is a good time to look at Microsoft and buy while you can at this current price because in a few short years with the whole Activision deal like maybe they'll just become a giant as you know they already are but more of a giant anyways well it, they are a giant they Microsoft affects so much of our lives uh, on a day-to-day -day basis whether you use a Microsoft PC mm. Microsoft Teams uh, you really can't escape Microsoft even though we live in a world of Facebook Google and even Apple products Microsoft has still survived you know if you look at word processing everybody's still I was really amazed when Microsoft had Microsoft Office and they made that a subscription. Yeah, they, that's they were right. able to do that because people they they realized people would keep their old Windows version they, or or Word version and not upgrade, but they they somehow convinced us. Adobe did it as well. Everybody, all these companies are going that subscription service. But here's the thing: there's only so many subscriptions we can afford mm -hmm. as people. We can't have Netflix, uh, Microsoft Game Pass. You know, it, it's just. At the end of the day, we're going to go broke. And I always tell people, cable looks pretty good these days when you, when you look at <laughs> streaming now because you can't afford to have all of these different subscriptions. And I, I wish those big companies, when they're in the meetings, they understand that, that we only have so much you know, disposable income and um, not to in keep increasing these prices because people might just give up on gaming. Like me, I'm almost like 
done gaming because it's getting hard to to play and afford to play yeah no no i think you make a really excellent point there and maybe that's a conversation for another day just like the oversaturation of subscription and and why is that such a big problem moving forward because companies are starting to run out of ideas and i think it's a copycat business where if one company starts something and then they're making tons of money off of it. Everyone's going to follow suit. And and that's kind of the Netflix model that you're talking about because their subscription subscription really was the first that I can think of. And then it just exploded once everyone realized there's a lot of potential with this kind of revenue stream. Um, but to your point, Andy, uh, you, you talked about Amazon wanting to get into the gaming thing. Like they came up with their own video game late last year uh, called New World. So like you see companies just trying to get into the industry now. So final thoughts, even though you're not a, a big gamer anyways anymore, um, clearly this is an industry where if you're young or if you're talking to someone like a, like a nephew or a niece, who's trying to think about what they want to do for the rest of their lives, like maybe push them into like coding and, and gaming development, because that seems like such a huge potential right now. Yeah. Uh, coding is one of the most, uh, like important skills that you can have. And it's funny because younger people, like when you're older and you're like, I got to learn to code. It's like trying to learn a new language. Yeah. But when you're younger, this is what you do for fun. You know, like we, I remember using like C plus plus, like this is way back in the day, but just, you know, old coding, even like DOS, DOS commands, you know, I, I tried to still use them and, and I forget. And I'm like, wow, like I'm, I'm so rusty. I used to be so good <laughs> at this stuff. But the young kids these days, and they're making a lot of money just on, on their side projects, and they're doing it for fun. So that's one of the good skills to learn. But let's not forget the trades. <laughs> you can make a good good income learning the trades too. So I kind of got my foot in both sides yeah. Sean, these days. You know, I got one foot in technology, and I got the other foot in just trying to keep those, those old-fashioned skills that our dad and our grandfathers used to teach us um, because we need those, especially as we – uh, rely more and more on technology you know your, your, your faucet's gonna plug your, your your drains are gonna plug and you're gonna need to know how to fix that so you don't want to you know those life skills you want to make sure you have a good blend of those as well very good point very good point you know all these technology things uh, infrastructure somebody's got to build them somebody's got to install them so we do certainly need those skilled uh, laborers so it's an excellent point uh he is andy barrar he's a technology digital lifestyle expert you can find his work handy andymedia.com he also as you know makes a weekly appearance every monday night with uh, shane hewitt right here on the shift andy always a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much for doing this and uh let's do it again pretty soon i can't wait john Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 